Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we've got a conversation with our old friend, Richard Beck. But before we do that, let's talk about our sponsor. And do you know who the sponsor is for today? Northeastern Seminary. Now, perhaps you are exploring a new opportunity to serve or have been invested in ministry for years or somewhere in between. This is where Northeastern Seminary meets you. Between reading scripture and knowing how to live a life of faith, between having an idea of where the church is heading and being able to plan and articulate a vision, between relying on what you already know and being open to learning from others throughout the world. If you find yourself in the sacred space, and I don't know if one of my daughters ever would, but if you did, where would you go? (laughs) Northeastern Seminary. They have certificate and degree programs at... Northeastern Seminary. That are designed to equip you in the next phase of your ministry. Now, whether you're going to be a faithful teacher, transformational leader, missional partner, or biblical peacemaker, you can find out more at nes.edu slash calling. That's nes.edu slash calling. And as you heard, my help on the uh, ad today was one of my daughters, specifically my mermaid daughter, (laughs) Annie F. Downs. The one that is actually older than you, but it's still my favorite part of our relationship is that I'm like one of your children. in, In mermaid years, though, that's very possible. Now, that's true. I'm that's just true. realizing, and I do love your daughter. So, it, and I'm just realizing that sounds kind of weird if people don't know the backstory to the mermaid thing. Sure, you want to tell them, or you want me to tell them? You tell them. You tell them. Okay, I'll tell them. Um, when when you came to be on my podcast the first time, you brought me a gift, and mm-hmm. you brought me a mermaid blanket that had my name embroidered on it, mm-hmm. Annie F. And because all your daughters have that and you are letting me be part of the family. Yeah. So then when I came to Texas and hung out with your family and stayed with you guys for the weekend, I brought my mermaid tail and your daughters were so happy. And like, yeah, I won them over heart and soul that day. And I I continue. You really do. I don't know. Do you remember why we picked out the mermaid blanket or why I picked? Um, Did you say that at some point or did I? I It wouldn't be out of character. I think it was because... Annie, Aji, yeah. Adeline, Avery, like it's, you, yep. they all sound the same and they all have mermaid yeah, blankets. Right. Okay, that's it. Okay, now speaking of another chance for you and my daughters to hang out and do your little mermaid thing, there's a time you're going to be in Austin coming up soon. Yes, the, I can't wait. The first weekend in October, October 5th specifically, is when all of you can join this party because we're having a special event at, at my church, the Westover Hills Church, where Annie and yes. I are going to be talking about our new book. I can't wait. Your book and my book, they're birthday twins. We have twins. Yeah, we do. We do. It's the best. I love when this happens, when I have books released on the same day as friends. So yeah. this is a dream. So we get to be at Westover Church on Friday night, mm-hmm. October the 5th. You and me and doing some live podcasting, telling some jokes, a lot of- hanging out with friends. Anybody's welcome, right? I yeah. mean, it, it, we want your church people to come, but like anybody yeah. that can drive to Austin Friday night can come hear us talk about our new books and grab the new books. And mm-hmm. we have some surprises. So I'm very excited. I don't think we should say the surprises yet, but I think no, we aren't going to say the pr- surprise, mm-hmm. but everyone. Yeah. That's October 5th at 7 p.m. It's uh, I think we should call it like the remembering God over good. Night yeah, of there fun. we go. That's right. Because my book's Remembering God and yours is God Over Good. So we'll just put them together. The Remembering God Over Good book night. And we're going to have a lot of fun. And you're going to have some books there. We can get Annie F. Down autographs, yeah. copies of the new yeah, book. Yeah, and same. Yeah, we'll, we'll have both your books. I mean, both of our books, mine mm-hmm. and yours. I'm about to say, It'll be so fun, Luke. Don't say both of my books because my other book is a novel <laughs> that is just trash that I would never 
sign. I would pretend like, oh, no, I, didn't, I don't even know what you're talking about if someone found a copy of it. Whereas... <laughs> Whereas, like, if, if it was one of your books, you're like, yeah, I, I would. And here's a promise I'll make. If someone brings me one of your books, I'll sign that, too. Oh, yeah. I will say, definitely read this book, Annie mm-hmm. F. Downs. And if someone takes my book to your table, you're welcome to sign that. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And Yeah, I think so, too. People can pre-order your book and get, like, the audiobook already? Yeah, that's what we're doing, yeah. So if you um, if they want to right now, they can go ahead and pre-order the book. comes out the same day as yours, October 2nd. But uh, the first 5,000 people who pre-order will get the audiobook right now. So they can go ahead and listen through to the book before they read it. We're down to less than 1,000 um, codes left. So if people want to do it, they should jump on it. That's, but it's pretty fun. That's pretty amazing. I mean, yeah. I think everyone should do that. So, so go buy Annie's book Thanks. right now. Or, but, if, but if they want to get an autographed copy, pre-order, they can just bring that and the one that actually comes in the mail. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. What is the... So I've seen people on the old internet machines talking yep. about your new book. What is the, the feedback that you've gotten so far that has been like, oh, that's so amazing? Yeah, you know what's really sweet about this is I didn't... I didn't predict this would happen. I didn't predict this with the audiobook because it's um it's four and a half hours long. And so people can start it and finish it in the same day, you know, yeah. if they want to, which doesn't really happen when people read books very often. Mm-hmm. And so it's been really neat because literally the same day they get it, a bunch of people finish it. And so the feedback is has been what and you and I've talked about this before in our podcast, Luke, but you know, kind of my lane is Annie is your friend you get coffee with and sometimes you talk about the Bible. Mm-hmm. And everything we say yes to fits under that. It has to feel like that. And that seems to be the response people are having is like, hey, this, I felt like we were friends. And when I listened to your book, it felt like my friend talking to me, which is what I want. That's, that's mm. what I want the most is for people to feel like they, um, yeah, to feel like, how do I phrase it? I want people to feel like they know me. And when they listen to me talk about God, they believe me. That's what hmm. I want. I have had people from our church, Lindsay Nice Church, yeah, come up to me and say, Annie Downs, I feel like her and I could be best friends. I feel like we already are friends. So I feel like my like the people in Austin already feel that way. And if you don't, you come October fifth to the Western Hills Church at seven PM and you're gonna feel that's that right. way afterwards. <laughs> that's hope so. I mean, I think that's one of the most fun things about us getting to do this together, Luke, is we're really good friends. Your wife and I are really good friends. Your daughters and I are siblings. And whenever <laughs> you get to do things with your friends, it makes it so much more fun, yeah. you know? So the people who know and love you and trust you already will meet me. And the people who know and love me and trust me already will meet you. And we're just going to be one big happy. It's going to be the best. One big happy. If you have a mermaid blanket, please do bring it. I think. Oh my gosh, I'm going to pack mine. I, hey, what are people saying about God over good? I mean, I know what I have to say about it, but what are, are, are do you have a launch team and like pre-readers that are already listening or reading it? Um, okay. I feel bad that I haven't done a launch team. I just, you don't have to, I don't have a launch. Team. Okay, good. That makes me feel better. Um, like I, I don't have, like you can't get it now. Like it's the pre-order stuff is all I have. And so I don't, I mean, I've had people read it and people talk to me about it, but I haven't had like, just like the non people who have to, <laughs> the people who have to say nice things to me about it yet. So I'm, nobody has to say nice things to you about it. I don't have to say nice things to you about it. I could say, I'm really proud of you and let it go. Okay. But I read it and it made me cry. And I think it's one of a, a really beautiful, important book for people who, mm-hmm are new to faith or have grown up in faith. So I don't have to say any of that. And I love your book. Thank you. So. 
Thank you. I'm excited that we get to sit and talk about it in front of a bunch of people. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. And and with surprises. Surprises. What We can't talk about it, but here's what we can say. When my assistant Eliza said to you and I, I have this one idea. What if we brought a fill in the blank and she has a surprise? Mm-hmm. You and I both said, that's the greatest idea anyone's ever said to us ever. That, and we have to. Yeah. And that's that sounds fun. That Yeah. yeah that's, that's perfect. <laughs> that's, that sounds newsworthy. Newsworthy. Yep. With Norsworthy. With Norsworthy. Annie, thank you for drop, dropping in for this little part. Now we're going to transition to Richard Beck. Do you know Richard Beck? Have you read any of I don't know Richard Beck, but I respect them crazy. I respect him like crazy. You, so you've read like... I was going to say I respect the crazy out of him, but I can't respect the crazy out of anybody. I can't get the crazy out of no, people. No, he's a psychologist. There's I a lot of crazy. I highly respect him. Okay, so he's a good one. We're going to talk a little bit... Um, not a fun subject. We're dar- talking about like mental health, pastors... Um, so, Man, I know it's not fun, Luke, but here's the truth is that is like one of the most important conversations. We've got to keep having this conversation. I'm so grateful for you for leading that, leading that way and Richard Beck for, for having that too. Just we, we have to, you and I talk about this in our real lives, but I want to be in this for the long haul. You know, I want to be doing ministry for a really long time. I want you and I to still be podcasting in 40 years. And the only way we do that is if we talk about our spiritual, emotional, and physical health openly. Yep. You know, and so I'm, I'm thankful you're leading that conversation today. All right. Well, like Annie said, this is important. So stay with us. Annie, we'll talk to you more soon. Yep. Thanks, bud. Richard Beck. Welcome back. It's good to be back. It's been a Thank while. For, it, it really has. And so I'm glad that we, uh, we're fixing this right now. Well, you know, I was helping you out in the early days when you didn't know anybody, you know. You really were. You called me every week and we did a lot together, <laughs> but... but uh, <laughs> But now, like, you got, you know, legit people <laughs> to call and No, the real story is I read The Authenticity of Faith, and I thought, Richard won't just get on the phone with me. He's not going to just, like, let me shoot the breeze and ask him questions about his book. So I had to get a microphone for you to talk to me about your book. That's the real story. That's, there's no even, like, Norsworthian, uh, like, blurring of the edges. Like, that's actually what happened. No, I know that. And you're like the one person that's read the authenticity of too. So, so it was just okay. the two of us talking that day. Okay, I did this uh, interview with uh, a writer from Australia. She was like, doing something about Christian podcast, And she was like, well, what's your, your favorite podcast you ever did? And I was like, well, like, I like them all. Like, they're all my babies. And I said, but I think there's one. It's a two-part podcast. And she goes, it was Richard Beck and Rob Bell, wasn't it? And I go... Yeah, that you actually listen to my podcast, so thank you, first of all. And second of all, I, like that's one of my favorite ones I've ever done. So Yeah, that was a three great, man weave. Yeah, that was a great experience. It was fun. Yeah. And I think this one will be the next favorite podcast I've ever done. <laughs> okay, we'll see. It'll be that. It'll be that. Um so life's good. My dad's not working with you anymore. Uh so I don't actually have to officially be nice and say compliments about your books anymore. So sorry. Yeah, because because yeah, you're, I'm not your dad's supervisor anymore as the department chair. Yeah, but I think he's gonna. I, we're trying to get him to teach adjunct for us this spring to, to be a pra- do a practicum section. You know, so we want your dad's voice. He's such a great teacher, and so we want to keep him around. I th- I think he's a great teacher too. He we were in Arkansas for his my grandmother his mom's funeral, and he and his brother. Decide they want to go to their uncle's old house in Nashville, Arkansas, population 4,000. And there is this house that's like 60 years old. And like the door is open. It looked like a horror, horror movie, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And so they're going in the garage and just looking around. I'm like, Dad, 
how are you alive still? Like, I thought he was going to get shot at some point. My brother had to go pull him out of this, we thought maybe abandoned, maybe not abandoned house. And so, anyway, if you get, if you get him employed, he will, not be let, he will not be as prone to wander into strangers' houses. Yeah, we need to keep him off the streets, so give him productive yeah. labor, productive yeah, work. Yeah, it, it's not good for him being alone. <laughs> okay, um, anything else we need to know? Like, you, you're surviving without Stormont. It sounds like churches go in the right direction now that you've got Stormont out of, out of Highland. Yeah, Jonathan Stormont has moved, and so, we, yeah, we miss him. I miss Jonathan. Mm-hmm. We got to be really, really good friends, and so losing, losing him was kind of not just a loss for the church, but I, I kind of missed a friend, so. Oh. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of sweet. I, and I know you want me to take a shot at Jonathan right now, but no. I want to keep it sweet here. That's, I, first of all, I would not make you take a shot at him. Like, I wouldn't say, oh, I bet you two and your friends, you kind of look like Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito and twins. Like, that's, <laughs> I, like I yeah. could make that joke, but I wouldn't do that. No, I know. I'm glad you didn't. Yeah, I'm, we're here to say nice things about Jonathan. Um, all right, so here's the transition. It's, a, it's not an easy transition. So uh, mental health had been kind of all over the news uh, in light of there was a tragedy about a pastor in uh, California, uh, Andrew Stercombe, I'm not sure how to say his last name, uh, committed suicide. And he had just come back from a couple months uh, break the church. He kind of gave him a sabbatical to deal with depression. He had actually preached on depression the Sunday before, um, and then he takes his life a couple days after. And so, all over my news feed, all over Instagram, all over Twitter, everything was talking about mental health. So I texted you, and you hadn't even heard the story because you don't do any of the social medias. I'm kind of unplugged. Yeah, which like that's probably a good thing, like to stay away. I'm a lot less agitated than most of my friends. <laughs> Have you wait, did you like conscientiously get off social media or do you just like never jump on that train? No, I I I used to have a Facebook account and then I deleted it a long time ago. And I don't think at that time I was worried about being unplugged. I just um I forget why I did, I deleted it. And then I just never jumped on Twitter or Instagram or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But but now that I look back at those choices, I can't say I had this like plan. But as I look back at those choices, um, I think I think they've been good. So I just have this blog, but that doesn't keep me in the loop on updates and feeds or anything like that. Yeah, like like I told you, I have no feeds in my life. Yeah, that's not that's not a bad thing. So you stayed off. I, I'm curious what would have happened if your blog would have been like on Instagram, how that interaction would have worked for your blog traffic but either way like for your soul i can't imagine it's a bad thing to stay off social media yeah i think you know twitter is like a is built for passive aggressiveness don't you think the subtweet don't you think the subtweet is just designed for snark or passive aggressive i mean it's almost built to facilitate that so i think the whole idea of the subtweeting builds in a really dysfunctional snide kind of kind of dynamic and i'm just glad i'm not on it i i'm not a i got on instagram maybe six or eight months ago nine months ago however long and i really like that way more than like i'm hardly ever on facebook uh twitter i like to to check but i don't want to get in like debates which it seems like that's all twitter is Mm -hmm. i almost got in a debate on twitter because someone was talking junk about my church and I almost retorted, but then I was like, what's, like, what's the win? Like, what am I going to do? Like, I'm going to 
stare at my phone for 30 minutes yelling at some guy I don't know. So anyway, all that to say, unplug, not a bad way of living. So right. you didn't know, So when I texted you, you hadn't heard anything about the story. Correct. Now, I think, did you hop on the internet and do a little perusing of it? No, I, I just went and looked and saw what the story was about, a, you know, that there was a pastor that, and it was, just seemed very sad that, that mm-hmm. uh, and, it, and it didn't, it seemed like it, it, it didn't, there, there weren't a lot of predictors. It didn't seem from at least what the thing I was reading that it seemed to kind of come out of nowhere and he mm. was very lonely about that, but maybe, maybe he had, I don't know. When you think of predictors for self-harm or for suicide, like what kind of predictors do you psychologists typically well i mean i guess i guess what i was i'm sure people living close to him like his his wife and his family would have seen depression or whatever um and so what i was referring to predictors is that obviously as a pastor of a church there's a great deal of a a demand to to have it together to be Mm -hmm. enthusiastic to be extroverted to be confident that that the kind of the role demands a kind of masking of your affectivity. And, and so my, my, my hunch is, again, I don't know the story very well. My hunch is that the people that knew him or saw him that week would not have known that, that he was depressed and that he had been depressed for quite some time, just because of the way the pastor role causes people to hide their faith struggles or their, their marital struggles or their family struggles or their mental health struggles. I mean, I just think pastoring is a really, really hard emotional thing to do. You just said ma- pastoring uh, encourages masking of ac- affectivity? Affectivity. Yeah, your okay, emotional. Your life. emotions. So do you, what is, is there a correlation between masking affectivity or honesty, not having honesty with mental health and with like treatment of mental health? I mean, well, I, I mean, I think it can, I don't know. I mean, I can't cite research. I mean, I think living two different lives isn't healthy. I can't cite statistics. I don't know. Okay. How, it'd be hard to measure that. Um, but but I'm just thinking, is that like a tell that if someone is living this, like, I don't say duplicitous, but like with the mask on all the time that they're never able to pull it down. I don't know. I was just wondering, like, does suicide, is that connected often with people lacking the ability to have honest transparency with, with some group of people? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think because you're, you're, you're compartmentalizing your life, not letting people into certain parts of your life. Now, if you do have people who can see that part of you, it could be a, it could be a spouse, it could be um, accountability partners, it could be other group of pastors, then, then, then maybe that's managed better because you, at least some people know, know that part. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is more healthy. But, but I, I mean, I think we're all masking in various ways. I mean, I think mm-hmm. humans have a great capacity for compartmentalizing their lives. Um, and, 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 and sometimes I think it's so. so what, yeah. Okay, you said earlier that pastoring is, is difficult, challenging. I forget the phraseology you actually used. As I know that you're now big in the Enneagram since you've been on Ian Cron's podcast, which basically means you fully endorse it. Um, totally, on, totally on board. <laughs> there's a sarcasm. 
sevens typically minimize things and we can refrain. And I know I'm prone to say, well, it's not a big deal. It's just another job. Everyone's got issues with their jobs. And so I, I hate when pastors are like, well, you know, my job's so much harder than everyone else's or, or any sort of sense that like work isn't challenging is frustrating to me. Everyone's job has its own issues and problems that come with it. But do you think there's something specifically about pastoring that, that, I don't know, encourages or fosters this sort of mental health struggles? Yeah, well, because most people's jobs, I mean, I don't want to say it in a too exaggerated kind of way, but I mean, most people's jobs don't have to do with like matters of eternal significance. (laughs) And I don't mean, I don't mean heaven and hell, but I mean that, that what a pastor does goes to the, the deep roots of what gives life purpose and meaning, you know, for believers, okay? Yeah. And, and so in one sense, my job, so a lot of people's jobs in that sense don't matter. They matter in the sense that you need a paycheck and that you want to, you know, be somewhat fulfilled in your job. But you are not, your job isn't to be Atlas and hold up this entire worldview that gives the people in the pews a reason to live, a reason yeah. to keep going. And so if you feel like you're holding that up for everybody and you start shaking or you, we see cracks in you, then what you are setting down isn't just your plumbing business or me walking away from the classroom, which doesn't shake anybody's worldview. I'm just walking away from a job. But for a pastor to walk away from their job, to lose faith, to ask a question... Well, you know, you're chipping away at the foundations of what makes life bearable, yeah. um, and so I think the stakes are really high for a pastor. If you see any, if you see a pastor falter to to have an affair, to have an addiction, to come out as an atheist, or to have depression or suicide, it shakes us because the the thing that they represent, the thing that they carry, isn't just what they do. They're not just doing that job to pay the rent. Um, like most of us, you yeah. know, we're doing our job to pay the rent and it doesn't have cosmic significance. But I think, so yeah, so I think the stakes are ramped up and because the stakes are so high, I think pastors feel like when they're having a down Sunday or they're going through a rough patch on faith or they're going through, and you know, your, your book talk, your upcoming book is talks a little bit about what those seasons are like and how hard they can be, that, that there is a temptation to not show that because... So many people are counting on you or relying on you. And I'm not saying that's healthy. It just is. It's just the way it is. Yeah. Um, we, we, we look to other people to, and we lean on them. And they give us inspiration. And I think pastors feel like they have to be inspirational in some way. If not in their oratory, then, you know, then their families are good. And, and like, people look to them as examples of what faith could be or should be. And that's a lot of pressure. Um, uh, first of all, you get bonus points for plugging my book uh, so early in the conversation. So thank you. <laughs> you're a good friend. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I guess you're right that, right that people have found life in the church. And your expectation as a pastor is to keep that ship afloat. And you get projected upon people's like wish to have this meaning-giving entity to continue to smoothly function. And so it's not that... The concern for for pastors, unfortunately, in unhealthy situations, it's not like for the pastor themselves to be healthy, but so that the pastor continue to play the role that supports 
people's worldview is what you're saying. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I get that. Um, yeah, and so the mental health, it, we don't want that on the surface. We don't want pastors talking about it, no matter how, how much more normalized it seems to be in our culture. Mental health is something that people can talk about openly, and I feel like the attitudes towards that has changed drastically, even in the last decade. Would you, would you agree with that? Yes and no. I mean, I, I do think there's a lot of, I do think there's a lot of more media coverage about um, anxiety and depression. And, and so in some ways, since yes, but I still think there is a lingering stigma in America where people find it very risky to admit that they're going to therapy or that they're taking any oppression. I still think people feel a lot of, a little bit of shame about that. Mm-hmm. So, I don't think we're in any sort of great place when it comes to mental health or illness. But I, yeah, I, I think we're better than we were back like in the 50s or, yeah. or or things like that. So I do think there's more awareness, but I still think there's a sense of stigma and shame. Um, and some of it, I think the church can make it harder uh, for the mentally ill as How's well. Because, well, because I think in, in religious context, there is still this temptation – to kind of conflate mental well-being with spiritual well-being. Yeah. And, and that, so for example, I'm, I'm going to be preaching um, on, uh, at a church here in town about, and they want to talk about mental, mental health. And you have to be really careful when you talk about mental health from the pulpit because if you say something like from the pulpit, well, if we can all just you know, embrace this beautiful grace that God has given us, if we can just accept our identities in Christ – you know, that, then that is the best thing we can ever do for our anxiety or depression or our marriages or addictions. And if somebody's sitting out there with kind of chronic clinical depression and they hear this message, which is a good message, I think they would think, right? That, you know, that we, if we could receive our identities in Christ, that there would be some mental health benefits to that. But as they hear that message, you know, receive grace and, and, and you experience this sense of well-being and peace. They're like, well, now, now I just feel like you blame me. Like, like because I'm depressed, because I, there's something wrong with me, because I can't experience this grace. I can't feel this grace. And so now I just feel like even worse because I can't even do that. Mm-hmm. And so even the, even the mess, so, so here's the, here's the, here's the dark, darkness of depression. Even the message of grace can become shaming wow. because, because I can't, I can't feel it. Um, and if I can't feel it, the way the pastor says or the worship group yeah. and the worship leader says I should feel it, then it's then there's something deeply, deeply wrong with me. And it's again, and then it's almost kind of victim blaming in a sense, because you're like, well, I guess it's my fault that I can't feel it. All these wow. other people can feel it, but I can't. That's tough. Well, okay, then how do I we pastors say when you find your identity in Christ, when when you receive the grace of that you are God's beloved, when you understand the kind of love that God has for you, it can change you. How do you say that without creating the like that nasty cycle of the victim shaming of I already have depression, this makes me feel more depressed because I don't feel as good as pastor says I should feel. Well, and that's what I was talking about with this church. I said I said because they wanted me to come in and preach a message of grace. And they wanted it to be possibly for people dealing with clinical depression. And I said, well, my sermon is really more about kind of everyday neurosis and self-esteem. And you and I have talked a lot about neurosis. 
that that it is true that for people who who ha- who are, are are in a good place that if their self esteem is caught up in you know how much they weigh or or their their self esteem is caught up in how successful they are or keeping up with the Joneses or they're feeling shame by the American keep up with the Joneses culture you know, ca- you know if they're caught up in all that then grace is a thing that can be a deep blessing to them to kind of say I am loved of God. And people experience that every week in the pews. So you don't want to back away from that because it is the message of grace saves people. That said, what I try to say, if you start getting outside of like normal neurosis, normal you know, issues related to self-esteem, and start getting the clinical depression, we start talking about something different. Because now you're starting to talk to some, about something that isn't really under the person's like volitional control you're starting now to talk about something that's biological and that, some, that's, that a good worship song or a good sermon doesn't necessarily change the levels of serotonin in your brain. You, and, and, it's, and, and that's the thing I was trying to talk about with, with this church is that it's like we will accept a biological intervention for anything. Like if you bust your knee, you know, you'll, you'll go get surgery for that. You know, if you if you have a busted knee, you just don't tell people to walk it off. Yeah. But that's kind of what we do with depression, clinical depression. We tell people to walk it off. If you if you if your kid comes home after an eye exam at school, you know, a little kid, and they get their first eye exam, and the school says, "Hey, your kid needs corrective lenses," and so they gets his first pair of glasses. Like you don't you don't say no, and you send your kid in and say just squint harder. No, you get them glasses. But that's what we do with people with depression. We say squint harder. Hmm. You know, like like somehow somehow your willpower will overcome this like physical thing. We don't do it with a busted knee and we don't do it with bad eyesight, but we, we do it with mental illness. We basically say somehow you should be able to walk this off. You should be able to squint your way through it, try hard enough. And that's what I was trying to say, that 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 when you're bumping into that. A sermon of grace can sound to those people like just you know just walk it off, mm-hmm. but but there are to be clear, right? There are many of us that we fall down and get busted up, and getting up and wiping yourself and walking off is mm-hmm. legitimate recommendation. Yeah, you need to hear that. But how do I say? I'm I'm not even going to dance around this. I want to preach a sermon that says there's grace for you, and grace for you might might look like you being able to tell yourself that you are loved by God even as you go and get the prescription filled for whatever antidepressant. Is there is there grace that says, okay, this isn't going to take it away, but God is loving you and for you even if, you know, your serotonin levels are working against you? Like, I, I don't know the language I should be using. Well, no, I think that's good, what you just did, because basically you're saying, you're not saying you must feel this mm-hmm. because I think there's a lot in evangelical worship culture and evangelical preaching that is basically saying you must feel this. And if you, f- and so, because a lot of us associate the presence of God with emotionality and, yeah. and, and uh, be- because we're trying to create an emotional high and, and you're trying to do the emotional high through the worship or you're trying to do emotional high through your oratory, right? You're going to create such yeah. a beautiful sermon. You're going to give somebody that, that profound gut check. Yep. And, and, and so God's grace is experienced with a feeling. But if somebody can't feel it because of clinical depression, then, then you got to do what you do, which is you might not feel it, but God loves you anyway. Like, like you, you, 
you, you can't say grace is dependent upon you feeling this. That's the trap I'm trying to say you have That's to good. avoid with people. Yeah. And, and, and so, and the other thing I would say is what I talk to churches a lot about is that gr- this comes from Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer says the Christ in the word, the Christ in the words of another Christian is stronger than the Christ in my heart. And that's where the church steps in, mm. where if the Christ in my heart, um, because of trauma, because of mental illness, is just not there, I'm not feeling it, then I have to, I have, I need Christ to be in the words of other Christians. And that's why I think the local church is so important. I tell churches this all the time. I said, we show up to church uh, to make the love of God believable for each other. Because on our own, it's not believable. We don't be- really believe in the love of God for lots of reasons. Maybe, and maybe it's not mental illness. Maybe it's family of origin. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a tough time in your life, like you're unemployed. Like, like you're just not, you're not feeling it. So you need to go to a place where people stand in front of you and say, you matter. I'm glad you're here. I miss you when you're not here. And, and you kind of go, well, through their love, maybe I can believe in the love of God. Yep. Um, and so, so I do think, yes, grace is preached in those instances, but you're not insisting that people feel it yeah. you know, as, as, a, as a demonstration that, that it's there. Yeah, moving away from you have to feel this to equal you've can receive it. Yeah, that's good. You had said earlier, and you actually wrote this on a blog uh, a few days back, that often we describe faith crisis in ways that you are thinking, actually, that's not a faith crisis. That's actually a mental health issue. Help us understand the difference of those two things. Yeah, and I got some pushback on that because people thought that I maybe had drawn too sharp a distinction between faith crisis and mental health crisis. Mainly what I was saying is that lots of people come to me because I'm a psychologist and because I've written a lot about doubt that, you know, they're going through, you know, a faith crisis and they're, they're having doubts and they, they are struggling with church. But when I hear them as they describe where they are, it, it, it sounds like they're just going through a season of depression. And if you're going through a season of depression, everything seems, you know, is cast in kind of a negative light. Everything's filtered that way. And, and my point in the blog post was that sometimes maybe if the deeper underlying issue is depression, then maybe getting well is is the best thing you can do for your faith. Yeah. Um, and and the faith crises relieve themselves if we take care of the mental health problems. Now, to be clear, those go hand in hand. Sometimes a faith crisis can trigger depression, like we had said earlier, because faith holds up big existential parts of our lives purpose and meaning and if you lose your faith Mm -hmm. there will be an emotional consequence to that as you kind of pick up those pieces so i'm not saying that a faith problem can't trigger dysphoria or melancholy or even grief you know grieving the loss of god but but my point was just saying um attend to the mental health side of what's going on with you because sometimes that's that's the thing you need to be dealing with right now. It's not necessarily God you're struggling with, but you're just not really in a good place. Hmm. When think when you say seasons of depression, help us understand because sometimes we think of like chronic depression, this is just your your continual perspective on the world that it's this is always it. This is just a baseline. Whereas there's seasons of depression, how can people like understand what if, if they're going through a season of depression 
compared to just, hey, I'm having a few days, just things are kind of blue right now? Well, um, a couple of things. Some people are, suffer from uh, what's called di- dysthymia. And dysthymia is just kind of low-grade depression, and they just kind of always have it. And so some people are kind of chronically depressed in that sense, where they just have low-grade depression fairly consistently all the time. Um, a major depressive episode, which would last for weeks to months, um, is going to be pretty severe. Like, like if you have a major depressive episode, most people are, are going to, in your vicinity, are going to know. They're going to know, notice some impairment in the, in the way you're moving through your life. And, and so when I talk about seasons of depression, I could talk about one of those seasons. I could also talk about people having recurring major depressive episodes. Mm. Um, a lot, a lot of what people describe as depression also just might be what, call, what, what psychologists call an adjustment disorder. If there's a bereavement, lack of employment, a big life change, you can go through yeah. a season of, of uh, depression. But pro- it could be to clinical depression. But it could just be, a, a, like you said, a couple of days or an adjustment period where I feel homesick or I feel displaced and I'm just you know, not happy because of that. that, that people will label that season as depressed as well. It comes in lots of different ways. Okay, so you say stigma, the stigma of mental health. It's perpetuated when we expect people to have the emotionality of religion as though that is the equivalence of having like a deep faith. So move past the emotionality of it. Uh, I find that times that I've ever mentioned that I've gone to counseling, I always get people to respond to that. And they say, like, I, I... I would say in the past and not think anything of it. And then enough people came up and said, I really appreciate you saying that to make me realize just verbalizing that, that like I've gone to counseling, uh, that destigmatizes some for them as well. Are there other things you can think of that would help? No, I mean, I think just more of that is what I would say. I, w- I would say if pe- as people share more authentically and transparently about their struggles or about the assistance they're seeking from, I have a therapist mm-hmm. or I take an antidepressant or an anti-anxiety medication. Um, I went through a season of addiction or anxiety or depression that as we share those stories, I think, I think we destigmatize it. I, I don't think there's any other way to, other than that authenticity I think the trouble, though, is churches tend not to be authentic places because of that. Because, again, there's still this sense that if you were you know, like a really good Christian, that you wouldn't suffer from these mental health problems. Uh, uh, and, and, uh, and so to admit that you have mental health problems is somehow some admission of um, a moral failing on your part. Um, and, and, again, that's where I think there needs to be a lot of education in the church about what about the ways mental health and spiritual health can supplement each other or undermine each other, but how they're often very, very different. Mm -hmm. One of the things that was most concerning, overwhelming, perplexing, whatever word to to use, uh, beyond the fact that this guy, uh, this guy Andrew who passed away, who has three little boys, um, which I just can't imagine the pain that they're going through, um, is that he had preached the week before on mental health, and he had talked some about his own struggles with depression. 
And some would think, well, if you're going to talk about it, if you're willing to put it out there in the open, like that would be this panacea. Like if you're, if you're able to do this, that's the silver bullet that uh, fixes it. But for those of us who, who never really had struggles with depression, it's almost like I, I don't fully understand exactly what that's like. And I can't, I can't wrap my head around exactly how much hurt and how much pain this guy's going through that this seems like it's the only option. And Chris Seidman, you know Chris from the branch, mm-hmm. he talked about how he's this metaphor of a guy on 9-11 who jumps out of his building and Falling Man, I think is the name of that picture. Have you seen that? Mm-hmm. It's a real, oh, it's just, it's heartbreaking. But he talked about the misconception of mental health is that we think uh, that they're jumping because they want to instead of like, this seems like it's the only option. And so Seaman's metaphor, I think, and I'm botching it pretty strong right now, is if I'm on the first floor and, and I know that the firefighters are coming up and you're on the third floor, then I can tell you, don't jump, just wait, they're almost there. But if you're all the way up on the 57th floor and you have no idea anyone else is coming, it seems like the only option you have is to do what the, the falling man or jumping man did on 9-11, which is I'm going to follow this building because it's the only option I have. H- how can the church create environments where where people can hear, like, there are other options. If self-harm seems like it's your only way out, um, that there's, there, there's other options. Because it seems like the way I've understood people who are uh, feeling like self-harm is the only option that they have is it's not that they want to, like, they die, but they want to stop hurting so much. And it seems like the church needs to be like that embodiment of love that can n- not take it all away, but to, to help people see other options or something like oh goodness okay just yeah yeah big question luke thank you yeah, um, well you're welcome you you have a doctor before your name so i figure you know the answers to everything yeah well i don't um i mean the only thing the only thing i would say is i would say two things i think churches have to be they have to share a, a thicker richer life together because I do think that if people just come in on Sunday morning and it's for an hour and they kind of do the coffee and donuts thing and how's your day, then if that's it, if, that, if that's the only access we have to each other's lives, then yeah, we're never really getting to the pain. But we've created no venue to where you can actually interrupt me with your suffering. I mean, I mean, I know my church, right? If I'm walking through the auditorium and I'm heading from my Bible class and bump into you and you're, we're walking in the auditorium, and I go, hey, how's your week? You know, you, there's, that, there's no infrastructure for you to say, well, horrible. Um, I, I wouldn't know what to do. You wouldn't know what to do. Church is about to start. We're in the middle of the auditorium. Yeah. And, and, and so you just say what you have to say, which is good. You know, saw the football game. Don't, you know, uh, I mean, and, and so, so, yeah. so I think that's the first thing was we just have to create a thicker, richer life to where there are places and venues where you can actually say, you know, here, here's what we're doing. My, my wife, she likes this podcast. Sorry to put some competition in front of you. But, I but thought it's you were going to say uh, this podcast, like the one. Yeah, this this podcast. But the name of the podcast is called uh, "Terrible." Thanks for asking. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's about a it's a podcast about 
you know, horrible things have happened to people. But the title of the podcast speaks to kind of what the podcast is trying to do, which is to say, I want you to ask how I'm doing and how I'm doing is terrible, but thank you for asking. Mm -hmm. And that's where we need to get to in the church. We need to create spaces where people can ask, ask a question, how are you doing? And they have the capacity and we create the infrastructure for them to actually say, I'm doing terrible and lacking that space on a Sunday morning. And most churches don't have it. Mine really doesn't have it. I I don't know how we can care for each other. Well, now Mm -hmm. is that going to be a panacea? Is that going to somehow save everybody? Isn't, isn't no, I I think there's always going to be tragic aspects to this, but I do think that's the beginning. How can we, how just so, so a pastor listen to this or a church leader listen to this, podcast could ask that question do i have a space do we create spaces in our churches where somebody can actually answer i am doing terrible Mm -hmm. and that you then have the time to put that person back together again if they unwind if they unwind right in front of you and break down and that's going to take a long time hours to put that person back together again you know to, to 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 process all of that and by back together i don't mean they're fixed i mean to fully process them and bring them back to where they can at least walk out the door, you know, emotionally under control. Like, unless you have those capacities, then there isn't really an authentic life. And then the other thing I would say quickly is beyond that, beyond creating an infrastructure of transparency is back to what you said is tell stories, tell authentic stories from the stage. People who have suffered, people who have been depressed, share those stories. So at least somebody, this is Brene Brown's work. How do you deal with shame? Her, you know, the antidote, her antidote, antidote to shame is me too. You, you create a culture of empathy um, so that when somebody says, uh, I'm depressed, somebody says, listen, I've been through that. I, me too. Yeah. So those are the things I would suggest. Yeah. It seems that Sunday morning, obviously, it's not the time for people to have the – unwinding conversation but but i feel like what church needs to do is create the environment where you can have the number in your phone that you can call when you need to unwind and church creates the the lifeline that you can go to when that's going to happen because sunday morning like you're not going to do that when you're walking and you got to get your kids or you got to get some donuts or you're running late and you got something you have to do but if it creates the relationship if it creates a lifeline that you can draw upon in those times of need i feel like the church is succeeding because you're not going to Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, you're probably not going to have the crisis. But 3 a.m. in the morning, you know, Thursday, Tuesday morning, you might need to know someone you're going to call. And hopefully that's a person who you've sat next to or that you've shared a meal with. And hopefully the church, when she's doing her best, is creating those contacts in your phone that you can draw upon. Yeah, and I think, I think, I think that's fair. Yeah, you, you, you can't create this space on, on Sunday morning. So I think that's a fair point. And so Sunday morning can become the place where I make the friends that I do call at 3 a.m. So I would then just tell the pastors listening to narrate those stories, right? Get up there and tell those stories and say, um, you know, so-and-so called somebody and they showed up. And, and you know, like, like you c- call your people into that kind of... That's good. Um, into that kind of life that we... I mean, it's, it's, it's in the scripture, right? We carry each other's burdens. So tell those stories 
um, and, and, and kind of say to people, so that people will then take the risk to make the call and people also be willing to kind of take the call at 3 a.m. Um, that I, I think I think that's something that a preacher can do from the stage on Sunday morning to narrate that life for the congregation. That's good. That's good. Well, Richard, I appreciate you coming back on the podcast. I think I think you did well. <laughs> I think you did really well. Hey, it, you know, it's a hard conversation, and I am just one voice trying to speak grace into into very complicated subjects. And so I, I would just ask listeners who have dealt with depression and mental illness, if you and I have misspoke or misrepresented anything, that, you know, no, show up show up and let us know because it's it's hard. It's it's hard and it's it's uh um, and I think pastors listening in want to know how to preach about these issues as complicated as they are um, and as hard as they are and as tragic as they are. Um, so just I hope your listeners just take this with a bit of grace themselves. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I, cer- I certainly don't know any, everything about all of this, even though I'm a psychologist. Yeah, I agree. And hopefully our, well, at least my untrained uh, advice or my untrained opinions uh, while they might fall short, they are attempt to be graceful, and it's an attempt to help. And I'm grateful for those who are willing to be champions of this from their own experiences. And I know at our church, we've we've done. Uh, I did an entire sermon on mental health, and we had people who championed this cause by telling their own stories and their own vulnerability, and explain what it's like to be OCD or to be in depression or to deal with a kid who has uh, mental health struggles. And I, for those people, I say thank you. And to you, Richard, I also say thank you as well. Like, I appreciate it. It's good to see you. It's good to see you, as always. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned. <laughs>